Uh, it's uh, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 17, and we'll do uh, the uh, whole chapter. Um, <clears throat> I probably should have thought of a different uh, title. I actually intended to, and then I forgot. So uh, that's it, the covenant of circumcision. And we won't say anything more, well, we will, about circumcision. But uh, in chapter 15... <clears throat> And 16 of Genesis, we studied the calling of Abram, and I'm still using that name, and you'll see why as we go through this, and the birth of Ishmael. So if you were here, you heard the story of Ishmael and Hagar and all of that, and the covenant God made with Abram. Uh, these chapters of Genesis that we're studying are crucial for us to understand God's plan for the ages. So now in chapter 17, we learn about the second half of the covenant God gave to Abram that we studied last time that I taught here. The first half of the covenant was somewhat private with Abram alone, and now the second half becomes very public due to the sign of the covenant. All covenants have signs. A covenant is agreement between God and his people. And uh, so we could say that in our day, the covenant of marriage, marriage is a covenant, comes with a sign, a ring on our finger, uh, making it clear to all that we have pledged our love to one another in marriage for as long as we both shall live. That's a covenant. When God made a covenant with Noah, he gave us the sign of the rainbow that promises us that he will not ever again drown the world in a universal flood, ever again. Even if we still drive around in global warming vehicles or continue to raise herds of animals who, how do you say this, emit smells that cause the earth to get warm and melt the icebergs and fill the earth with water, drowning us all. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned that, but uh, <clears throat> it's amazing to me what some people will believe. Genesis verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1 reads this way. When Abram was 99 years old, now that really becomes important, so we have to stop there. If you look back to the last verse of chapter 16 or just see it on the screen, either one, it reads this way. Chapter 16, verse 16 reads, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So 13 years have passed, and if we really think about it, we have to admit that Abram was as good as dead, I don't mean physically dead, as it pertained to the promise of a child uh, by he and Sarai. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, it actually says that, referring to Genesis chapter 19. And in Hebrews eleven twelve, it says, and so from this one man, and that's Abram, and he was as good as dead, it reads, came descendants, descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless of the sand on the seashore. And where those descendants came from is incredibly important. And Kevin, when he did his thing on chapter 15, especially, he did a 
great job demonstrating how many stars there were and all of that kind of thing and how incredible it is uh, the words that were told because there are going to be generation after generation after generation uh, for thousands of years would uh, come along and they would all be counted and they would be uh, the generations that came through Abram that, that eventually ended up with Jesus coming through the, his line. So at this point in Abram's life at 99 years old, there was no chance, no logic that could be used to believe God's promises could now be fulfilled in Abram's life the way God had told him. Only the exercise of faith is left for Abram. Uh, some have called the faith we have blind faith. And when they say that, they mean that we believe something that can't happen. But our faith is not blind because we have faith in God and with God, nothing, nothing is impossible. So don't ever believe that God cannot or will not use you, especially in your later years, even in amazing ways, even until you draw your last breath on earth. So never quit, never give up, never give in because of the promises of God. So now let's go back to verse 1 again. When Abram was 99 years old, he could have just said 13 years later, the Lord, now this is the word for Lord that is pronounced El Shaddai, or God Almighty. It's the new name that's introduced here. The Lord, El Shaddai, God Almighty, appeared to Abram, actually appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully. In other words, live your life before me faithfully and be blameless. Now, the word blameless, I like to translate it personally, wholehearted. There is no other kind of commitment. That's the only kind of commitment the Bible ever talks about and suggests. So he's saying to Abram, I am El Shaddai, walk before me faithfully and in a wholehearted way. Then I will make or I will give or I will grant my covenant, that promise, between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers, meaning people. Now, God here is, isn't looking to get anything. He's looking to give us everything we need to live life for him by faith, supernaturally. I go to the book of Romans all the time, and this is a particular great verse. I, I believe I used it on Sunday, if I remember right. Romans 8, 31 to 32 reads, If God is for us, who can be against us? Just think about this now. This is a great two verses. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that's the cross, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Message Bible ends it this way. Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? What a great statement. God said to Abram, walk before me wholeheartedly, holding nothing back. Be all in. 
In Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God. That's the same picture. He walked with God, and then he was not. At Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And we're to walk with God. We're to please God. We already know what God wants of us. The Bible's very clear on all of that. And so in, in, in verse 3, the next three words are, Abram, after he heard this from God, fell face down. Now we have a new name for God here, El Shaddai, God Almighty. There is a history of what this term actually means. The traditional meaning is God who is sufficient. The best way to understand a word is to look at how it is used in all the Bible. This word is used in the Bible in the book of Job over 30 times, I believe actually 31 times, and pictures the mighty God over against the frailty of humankind. Compared to God, we're pretty frail, but he's for us, not against us. In Genesis, uh, this name for God is used most often when God's servants are in much trouble and need reassurance. In A.W. Tozer's book, on the attributes of God, the knowledge of the holy, and I hope you've read it. You must read that book. If you've never read it, you just write it down. You must read it. It's not a long book, and you'll be really glad you did. The theme of the book happens in the introduction, and it says the most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. And if you just think about that statement, you can see why that's true. God, Elohim, God, Yahweh, the I am God, El Shaddai. God Almighty. These names tell us about God. God created us. God keeps his promises to us. God encourages us when we're in great need. What we believe about God determines how we live our lives and how we react when life doesn't go as we hoped it would. It actually determines how we do pretty well everything, if we're Christians and we've read the Bible and we want to please God, uh, it pretty well covers everything that we can possibly do in every station of life and circumstance. Now, notice the reaction of Abram when God revealed himself as El Shaddai. His reaction was worship. His reaction was awe. Uh, Paul Tripp wrote a book called Awe. That's another must-read book. Paul Tripp's written a lot of books. Every one of them is great, but the book Awe is his best. We need, to, we need to come back to the understanding of the awesomeness of God. And even here, as he falls down before uh, God, there's fear. Uh, fear, not running away fear. No, not that. Staying put fear, worshiping fear, hope-filled fear. That's actually a good way of thinking about the word awe. It's hope-filled fear. The first wholehearted response, proving one is completely dedicated to God's plan, is worship. And so verse 3, Abram fell face down. Now, Abram has changed. Heartfelt worship is the result of full commitment. Abram, whose name is about to change, as we'll see in a moment, has already changed in his heart. He had believed God, and it was already credited to him as righteousness. But now 
His belief is being strengthened, and he bows to El Shaddai, God Almighty, who can do the impossible. Because he can't imagine how God could do what he said. He thought that Ishmael was a good replacement. He was wrong. No, no, uh, he's going to have a child. In James 2.23, it reads, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So even here in the beginning of Genesis, in the first 17th uh, chapter of Genesis, we're seeing the relational God. He has, he, he, Adam and Eve had a relation with God. They walked with God in the garden. Abraham has a relation with God, and God is now Abram's friend. That's what he wanted to be. So back to verse 3, and then we'll get moving. Abram fell face down, and God said to him. Or we could just put it this way. Abram fell face down, and God spoke to him. God did not stop speaking after, say, Genesis 12, when we first run into Abram, or Revelation 22 at the end. God speaks to us primarily through the reading and memorizing and meditation on the Scriptures. God speaks to us through one another, the preacher or the teacher, or a Christian friend, a conference with other Christians, but mainly God speaks to us as we become more and more one another people. That's why I'm so big on this idea of one anotherness. The Word of God is the measurement of what one believes God has said. He will never speak to us in any way that is not already in God's Word, but He uses the Scripture to mold us, to direct us, and even discipline us and warn us. I use this verse often. It's absolutely important that you memorize it, but I especially like the way the Message Bible puts it. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Here's how Peterson, who wrote that Bible, put it: Every part of Scripture, really from Genesis to Revelation, is God breathed. God breathed. It's inspired by God, and useful one way or another, showing us truth. Exposing our rebellion, I've had that happen in a morning reading. <laughs> Correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, that's all of the Scriptures, Hebrew and Greek Scriptures, we are put, to, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. That's how important the Word of God is. So maybe... If we fell on our faces in prayer and worship like Abram and listened intently to God, we might just bring that friend to church or tell that person we work with about Jesus or turn from that attitude or habit that is holding us back from making a unconditional commitment to God in the way we walk, in the way we live our lives. We know what God said to Abram, but a good question is, what is God saying to us today? He's still speaking today. Now, I hope you don't come here <clears throat> to only learn about what the Bible says, <clears throat> excuse me, as if this is a classroom and the Bible's an academic book to study. The Bible is an academic book to study, yes, but 
We are to meet together here and in home fellowships and other Bible studies to hear from God and respond to his voice as we worship and listen and obey what we are taught or what we are reading. When Hebrews 10 tells us not to stop physically meeting together, it's not a way to grow the church. That wasn't the idea. But a way to discern the truthfulness of what the church is teaching. That's why in Acts chapter 17, uh, the Berean Jews checked out everything that Paul had to say. He was an apostle, and they listened to him, and then they checked it out with the Hebrew Scriptures to see if it was true, what he was saying. And they they were commended for doing this. This is what we're supposed to do. But we're supposed to do it together. And very many Christians, especially today, are not one another Christians. They watch online or they come to church and they never come late and leave early. (laughs) We really need one another and we cannot grow as Christians. And even, I read all kinds of books about health things and I don't like to talk about them too much. I just want to, as long as I live, I want to live as well as I can. But uh, the in every book that you read about health and all of that, it says that the one thing we need to boost our immune system, to do everything is we need each other. God made us physically, made us that if we don't live together, then we won't be able to after a while. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You can't spur another person on who you don't know. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So beware of being independent from the encouragement of other believers or you may become deceived thinking that you're thinking when you think you hear from God. You'll, you'll have the wrong thoughts. The devil will get to you. In Jeremiah 17, 9, I love this uh, sentence. The heart, that's all our hearts, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So we need to have good enough relationships with one another that if one of us is going a little bit in the wrong direction, even if we're thinking and saying, and you can only know that if you know others that can know you, if you allow others to know you as you're coming to know them, uh, then uh, we'll, de- we'll just deceive ourselves. So here is what God said to Abram, verse 4. Here's what he said. As for me, this is God speaking, this is my covenant with you, Abram. You will be the father of many nations, the father of many nations. In the Hebrew language, father is Ab or Abba. And you'll be that of many nations. And we will, we will see these nations, we will see these nations develop during our Genesis study. But the Apostle Paul used this promise to confirm that even we today are included in these many nations. The book of Romans talks about this all the time. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 16, reads this way. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. 
all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, in other words, the Jews, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. This is talking about us now. As it is written, back in the 17th chapter of Genesis, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father. Remember, this is in Romans now in the New Testament. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead. And he's talking there about spiritual life, although Jesus raised some people from the dead. But uh, the God who gives life from the dead, being born again, in other words, and calls into being things that were not. That's talking about Genesis chapter 1, when God calls the creation into being. So now, the name change. Verse 5. God says... No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. A name change in later life that sounded like his normal name, but now has a deeper meaning. So exalted father, Abram, becomes the father of many, Abraham. In the Hebrew language, it sounds uh, you can, there's two different sounds, Abe and then Ham, Abraham. We put it in English, Abraham. And so you, when you would hear it, you would know the difference right away. And so Abraham, or Abram, had to go around to everybody and said, God changed my name, and now I want you to call me Abraham. And I just can almost imagine the jokes that went around. Abram wants us to call him Abraham now. He thinks he's going to have a child by Sarai. Clearly, he is deluded. (laughs) But sometimes ridicule is the price of faith. But the day comes when little Isaac is sitting on Abram's lap and looks at his dad and says, Abba, Father, But every time Abram hears Abraham, he will be reminded of the promises to come. And after Isaac is born, he'll be reminded of the faithfulness of God. I mean, remember now, he's lying down listening to this. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which both of them sounded like the word for rock, that Jesus said that he would build his church on this rock by the name of Peter. So Peter the Rock preached the first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2, and every time we read or hear his name, we should remember we exist because of the promise of the church, the body of Christ. That's what he promised. He promised salvation, but it's in the church, the body of Christ. And then God's still speaking to Abraham now, verse 6. He says, I will, that's one time, make you very fruitful. I will, another time, make nations of you, and kings will come from you. This makes Abraham royalty. Again, verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That's an eternal promise. 
verse 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And the fifth time he says, after you, and I will be their God. Now, most of us have been to weddings, even several weddings. And at one point in the wedding, uh, the pastor or whoever will, will say to the bride and then the groom, will you take this, will you take this? And the answer to that is, I will. Well, that's the same kind of picture. But God still is I-willing <laughs> for all of us. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we read this. <clears throat> this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the line of David, the son of Abraham. That's what God is promising here, and it goes right through to David and to the birth of Jesus. When we do communion together uh, in our Wednesday night services and our Sunday morning services, <clears throat> when we do it together, I often talk about the new covenant that Jesus talks about. And we're under this new covenant. And uh, the new covenant is described in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter uh, 31, verses 31 to 34. And here's what it, how it reads. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's the northern and southern kingdoms. In other words, God's people, the Jewish people. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's when they went from Pharaoh and Moses and the Red Sea and all that. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That only happens at the cross. That's the new covenant. And every time we take communion together, we, in our minds, we can go all the way back to Abraham and see it comes all through the line of David, and then finally the Messiah comes, and we have a new covenant, a covenant and we're saved by faith in that covenant also. Abram was saved by faith. Everybody in the Old Testament, they were all saved by faith, and it was credited to them for righteousness. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and because of our faith, then we are, have our faith credited as righteousness too. Now, let's go back to verse 9, because God's still speaking. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are, to undergo, you are to undergo circumcision. This, is, this will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. This is a participatory sign. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. So everybody's being included here, whether born in your household 
or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And any, verse 14, uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. So let's just think about this for a minute. What is actually missing here? First, there's no moral rules, no Ten Commandments, uh, no list of do's and don'ts. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant, the same as the rainbow for Noah and still for us. The only real condition here is relationship. God is our God, and we are to be blameless, to be perfect before him, to be wholehearted, to be committed all in for what God has done for us. When someone becomes a Christian, he or she finds an enablement never experienced before because we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. And we have a God-given conscience, and on receiving Jesus, that conscience kicks in anew, and then things really change. You cannot become a believer without things changing. If you're all in, and you've received the Holy Spirit, and you're reading the Word of God, and you're fellowshipping in the, in the body of Christ, the church, you will be changed. And when I became a Christian, believe me, if I had not become a Christian... Uh, we wouldn't uh, be married for all these years. I think it's over 50 years now, isn't it? <laughs> Quite a bit over. I mean, my love for Valerie changed completely. My language cleaned up. My desire to go to the local bar was replaced by a desire for my family and, and church people. In the office, they said, oh, he'll get over it. They couldn't believe that I was doing all this stuff. All of a sudden, that's what it looked like to them, and it was in a sense, even though it takes place over time, but it's like all of a sudden, I've now changed just about everything about my life, but God does that. So for Abraham, circumcision becomes a sign of God's commitment to his people. Gentiles could also be circumcised, which fulfills the promise that Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth. Now, baptism is the same today. It's a sign that we have been saved already, and we are simply acknowledging publicly what God has done. So now, we've been talking, we talked about name change. Here's another name change, verse 15. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. So he changed her name. Now, it's important that Sarah's name was changed also because of the covenant of circumcision. It's about both Abram, Abraham and now Sarah. It's about both of them. And you'll understand that by the time we hopefully get to the end. Both names mean, both Sarah and Sarah, both names mean princess. The slight difference simply confirms that Sarai was already a princess in God's eyes. And she still will be, as she has descendants that will be kings. This shows me that God never gives up on us. He is molding us and changing us right up to our last breath on earth and forever. How foolish we are, how foolish I am when I give in to discouragement and don't believe God is still wanting to use me even as I grow older.
Now look at verse 16. I will bless her, God says, and will surely give you a son by her. Now he's really thinking. <laughs> and, uh, and she'll be the mother of nations, kings, of peoples will come from her. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now look at verse 17. Three words. Abram, Abraham now, change name, fell face down. We need more of this face down stuff, I think. But then it says this. It says, he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? I mean, he's 99. <laughs> Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Now, in chapter 18, God rebukes Sarah's laughter because it was laughter from unbelief. This isn't laughter for unbelief. This is really, he's saying to God, you've got to be kidding. How could this be? He's listened to God. He knows about the promise of God. He's believed by faith that God is going to fulfill the promise. He tried to fulfill it by replacing Sarah with Hagar and Ismail and all this. But now he knows that God has said very directly, you will you know, have a son, and, and even though you'll be 100 years old, and Sarah will bear a child even though she's 90 years old. So Abram said to God, verse 18, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Now this isn't, I've, I've thought about for so, so much, I've taught on this many times before. This is not a, a statement of unbelief. It's a statement of, can hardly believe it. Really? Well, what about Ishmael? Because is, may he live under your blessing. What's going to happen to Ishmael? So he's at least opening the door. Well, okay, if I am going to have a son, what about Ishmael? And this is what he's asking. Romans again, chapter 4, taking off from the verses we already read, verse 18 to 25. Listen to this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Apostle Paul's writing this, without weakening in his faith, he didn't. He knew that God meant what he said. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And the Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, he didn't get up from this meeting and say, I don't think this is going to happen. No, he got up from this meeting telling his wife and making arrangements and doing all the things that need to be done. So this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, Christian, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see, it's exactly the same. That's always been the way uh, that 
that we had been saved by faith. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and the impossible happened, at least as far as the people in the world were concerned, and was raised to life for our justification, just as if we had never sinned. That's the most amazing thing. So I say this all the time in sermons, and I'm mostly just talking to myself. We have nothing to worry about. If this story is true, and it is, we have nothing to worry about. Uh, Derek Kidner, commenting on this section of Genesis, says, On such genuine struggles of faith, God is never hard, and Abraham's doubt was wonderfully tempered by faith and love in the prayer for Ishmael. Now look at verse 19 in your Bibles. Then God said, Yes, Abram, Abraham, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. By the way, the word Isaac, you may remember this, means laughter. That's, that's really neat. I will establish my covenant with Ishmael as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And I'm sorry, with Isaac, descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, verse 20, I've heard you. Uh, so uh, Isaac means laughter, but Ishmael means God hears. You might remember that from the study. I will surely bless him. I will make him faithful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. Now, verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abram, God went up from him. Now, I, I sat today thinking about this, so let me see. What did he do? Did he jump up and say, this is great. Hey, Sarah, I come over here. Your name's now Sarah. You're a prince, princess, princess. And, uh, and we're going to have a child. And so let's, never mind. But um, I think that that's not what happened. But he didn't waste a lot of time. I think that he had to just be sitting there stunned, totally stunned. I don't think he sat there like for hours, but I think he spent a good amount of time just sitting there thinking through everything he had just heard in the most supernatural, most incredible way and coming to grips with it and knowing it's got to be true. And then he went to uh, Sarai and sat her down and told her, he would have told her everything and she would have just listened. Before uh, she interrupted and said, I've got this, Hagar, and you need to go of Hagar, and you can have a child and all that. I don't think that that entered the conversation this time. This time, she's thinking, maybe this really is going to happen. And so it didn't take a long time, because verse 23 starts out with these words, on that very day. So, so this all happened in one particular day. Abram took his son, Ishmael, and all those born in his household or bought with his money, 
every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Oh, you may wonder about the circumcision idea. There was lots of circumcision in the cults and cultures around them. So this was not an unusual thing. It wasn't like this is the first time any child ever, any place had ever been circumcised. Uh, there were other uh, sort of religious ideas around uh, that dealt with circumcision. So <clears throat> he uh, circumcised them as God told him. And he was, uh, he was the, the father. I mean, the, the, he was in charge of everything. Uh, so whatever he said, they had to do. And then in verse 24, it says Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old. Abram, Abraham, and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. So there is no doubt that Abraham believed everything God had said and that God would fulfill his promise. Also, one writer suggests that this is the start of the church in the Old Testament, the same way as Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church in the New Testament. And I think that that really is true. This is where the church really starts. It wasn't called the church. It was a gathering, but now we have the church, and that gathering became the church. And so we see here before our eyes grace, tremendous grace, unmerited favor. Ishmael, Hagar's son, representing Egypt, Every member of the household, regardless of background, is accepted into God's covenant promise, not just one group of people. Now it is through one group today, through Isaac, that the Messiah is born, but his birth is salvation for all, not just one group. So Jesus procured salvation for everyone in the world, the same as Abraham did here, as God did through Abraham. So... We must live blameless, wholehearted lives. And finally, why circumcision? Um, I've chosen to read a paragraph from Dr. Alan P. Ross, a scholar who is an expert on Genesis. And I think it'll help us understand why. Uh, someone in the hallway said to me just uh, before the service started that about circumcision, she said, well, that kind of leaves me out. No, it doesn't, and here's why, that, why it doesn't. And this is really kind of wonderful. So think about this. The rite of circumcision was appropriate to the nature of the covenant. With this symbol, God instructed his people regarding the joining of faith with the act of reproduction. The sign was sexual. The promise was for a seed. The covenanters, those in the covenant, would be reminded first that human nature alone was unable to generate the promised seed if God was not willing to grant such fruitfulness. And two, that impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage. The sign formed a constant reminder for the people to preserve the purity of marriage in order to produce a godly seed. 
And so that was the, that was the picture, really, of what circumcision was all about. It was a picture of marriage and of having children. But I want to point out that circumcision is painful and bloody. Even Jesus was circumcised as a baby eight days after birth. He also experienced a bloody, painful death in order for us to be saved. It always, it all, it, salvation comes through blood, blood sacrifice, all the way through the book of Leviticus. And when we'll eventually study that, you'll see it over and over again. I already used the wedding ring as a symbol of lifetime commitment, but circumcision signified a whole life commitment and could not be removed like a wedding ring might be. So circumcision was a permanent sign, and that is why Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this, Jeremiah 4.4, to the people. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or you could just say God's people. So circumcision became a symbol of an individual's spiritual commitment. And Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live, really live. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote about circumcision in Colossians chapter 2, and here's how he wrote it. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. That's really important because I've said it over and over again in sermons. I always refer back to Romans chapter 6, especially where we cannot not sin because we have a sin nature. But when we become Christians and have the Holy Spirit, we are now able to not sin. Oh, we'll still sin. I always make sure I say that. And, and 1 John 1, 9 tells us, you know, when we do sin, if we do sin, then, uh, and we repent of that sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking to Christians there. And so uh, we have the ability not to sin. And so that's why it says here that Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature... You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. That's the picture of baptism. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So I hope you can see how the promises to Abraham became the new covenant that Jesus brought so that we can all be sins and be circumcised in heart, meaning that we are willing to live for God all out, hold nothing back. We're to walk with God with one another, not all separated out, but with one another because we cannot discern God's will all alone if he put us in a 
hole in a prison someplace or something. God can deal with us in a special way, but, but we must be part of the body of Christ, and then we'll always be able to discern the will of God because if we're wrong, we'll have brothers and sisters who know us well enough that will stop us. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this uh, Old Testament picture of really the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, he bled on that cross. He suffered terrible, terrible punishment and, and uh, physical harm to his body. And then he took, he took everything, all the sin of the world onto himself. And he became that bloody sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. And all we have to do is receive that to as many as believed in all that and received it. Then he made us able to be children of God, men and women who live for you uh, all out while we're still here, knowing that when we do uh, have that last breath, it'll be even better than we ever imagined. In Jesus' name, amen.